Welcome to Climate Plus, a DevX podcast. I'm Michael Igo, senior reporter at DevX. Every year, usually around this time, the world turns its attention to climate change and what we're doing or not doing about it. At the UN Climate Conference, or COP, negotiators get deep into the weeds on every aspect of the climate crisis. This year, it's happening in Dubai. To help make sense of this complex, critical moment, we're bringing you conversations with leading climate thinkers, activists, and experts, and asking them, can COP28 deliver? If we are serious about meeting the SDGs, it won't happen until we begin to focus on this neglected sector, which is very, very sensitive uh, to to climate. So that, I think, is going to be a, a, a key point. And then the question will be, what should we do? For three years, the Horn of Africa has faced one of the most devastating droughts in its history pushing tens of millions into acute food insecurity, causing mass displacement, and battering the region's agricultural economy. According to some scientists, this drought was made 100 times more likely by climate change. Some of the impacts of climate change will outstrip our ability to change our lives, livelihoods, and environments to deal with them. But in other cases, like agriculture in a world of increasing droughts or floods or both, there is a big role for human ingenuity and creativity. That is to say, climate change adaptation. This has sometimes seemed like a bit of a mysterious process to me though. What is adaptation? How does it happen? How does it get funded? In this episode, my colleague Stephanie Beasley digs into those questions with Enoch Chikaba of the Gates Foundation. Here's their conversation. This is Climate Plus. I'm Stephanie Beasley. There was a time when world leaders and climate activists mostly spoke about climate change within the framework of mitigating its impacts by taking actions such as reducing our use of fossil fuels, and the flow of heat-trapping greenhouse gases. Less likely to be included in those conversations was a discussion of how to help communities adapt to the impacts of climate change that were already apparent, such as heat waves, droughts, flooding, and other extreme weather events. While this has changed somewhat in recent years, progress isn't happening fast enough. A recent UN report found an annual financing shortfall for adaptation, meaning the difference between what's spent and what needs to be spent, of an estimated $194 billion to $366 billion, even as climate impacts accelerate. Adaptation planning and implementation appear to be plateauing, the UN said. That's grim news, but some still see reason for optimism. In a recent blog post, billionaire philanthropist Bill Gates said, there are more reasons to be hopeful than many people realize. Among his list of reasons is the development of new crops that will grow in warmer, drier climates and the introduction of AI tools that could help farmers better understand climate threats. Today's guest, Enoch Shikava, knows all about that work 
He leads the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's Agricultural Development Program and is especially focused on reducing poverty for families in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. Chikava himself was raised on a smallholder farm in Zimbabwe and has more than 30 years of experience in agriculture. Enoch, thanks so much for joining me. Let's start by having you just tell me a little bit more about some of this research and innovation that Bill Gates mentioned in that blog post and how it fits into the foundation's broader adaptation strategy. No, thanks very much, uh, Stephanie. And it's a wonderful privilege uh, to be talking about this very important subject, even as we head towards COP28, where we all are very hopeful this time around that we are going to be turning all this rhetoric for many, many years into real action. But again, more specifically to your question, uh, what is fundable? What will make a huge difference? So for more than 50 years now, there is a global alliance of research organizations called the CGIAR, and they have been working on crops and livestock and digital innovations. And their focus is 100% on smallholder farmers in the global south, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, in South Asia. And this is the region that now is home to 3 billion people, but they are suffering the most impact of the already uh, consequences of climate change. Yet, I will speak here for Sub-Saharan Africa, they contributed the least in terms of the emissions, as you all know. 4% um, of the emissions, but they are already uh, suffering under the consequences of uh, climate change. You know, uh, the one of Africa, uh, five years, back-to-back -back droughts. You know what has been happening in West Africa, floods on the other hand. So we believe the CGIAR has developed crop varieties. I can mention a few here, but we have one of the uh, very climate resilient crops called cassava. And over the years, they've been developing a, a very solid, robust pipeline of the cassava uh, that you know is able to manage uh, or thrive even under high temperatures, drought conditions, as well as the floods. So they say it is, it is a, a super crop when it comes to climate change. It has been neglected uh, because uh, a lot of that research, you don't find it in the private sector. But in the last few years, I'll say 15 years, there's what uh, a project called the Next Gen Cassava, which has been working with smallholder farmers, particularly women, to come up with some of the traits which the women would want to see, like the cooking properties, like uh, early maturing, uh, like also the um, uh, supplementing some of the deficiencies in cassava, like the vitamins, micronutrients, iron. So they've been working on this pipeline of cassava. Not, not only that, they've been also working on other more climate smart or adaptive uh, crops, like millet, sorghum, sweet potato. And these are uh, foods which are prevalent in most of the African regions. Very, very uh, different. If you look at the global food system, 
they centralized all the food into only four commodities. It's about corn, it's about wheat, it's about rice and soya bean. And in some places in Africa don't have the strength in producing these global uh, you know, food value chains. But now focusing on what is already resilient is very, very important for Africa. So the CG does that. Uh, they're also focusing on uh, some of the chickens which are adapted to tropical conditions and then raising their productivity. When I have what we call the dual purpose poultry, so the chicken that can give you the eggs, it can give you the meat, it produces five times more eggs than your indigenous chicken, but very much adapted to the tropical conditions. It can scavenge for food. It can run away from predators and so on and camouflage. So you are now taking some of these low productivity uh, chickens and then you improve their productivity. We are but keeping the adaptive capacity, you know, as part of those traits. Now, now I wanted to ask you, because I'm very curious about these chickens. Uh, now, how do you discover if a chicken is going to be more likely to survive in like a, a drier, warmer environment? Like what type of testing? Is this selective breeding or how does this work? It's all conventional breeding where you already go into those communities. They have been raising chicken for many, many years. In the order of um, when you have said drought, for example, take the one of Africa, you know, the first thing to suffer will be your vegetation. You know, your grass will die and then that will affect your cattle because the cattle depend on the grass. And then it gets into wildlife will be the next victim. Then it gets into some of the small ruminants like goats. And the last will be your chickens. So, so they're already very hardy you know, they can tolerate high temperatures. So you go into those, into those communities, identify what already exists there. And then through uh, conventional breeding, you raise the productivity so that they can do more eggs and then they can produce more meat and then they can have a better food conversion rates. Uh, so you're get, getting to where the people are, take all, the um, livestock they have, take all the crops they, that they've already been growing for years, and then bring in new tools. You can bring in AI to make the selection more precise, increasing the accuracy of the traits. You identify where the traits are. So there are several tools which the global north has been using for many, many years. That's why they end up with uh, superiority in the production of corn, soya bean, and rice. Those tools will, have not been available for the, for the global south. That is the role of the CGIAR. They are doing that and they are now using 21st century tools and innovations which the private sector using the global north. Now it is available in the, in the public sector. That is why the CG system is best positioned uh, to be um, to be championing all these innovations. The challenge, though, is that they are significantly underfunded. We estimate right now at about $950 million per year, they should be $2 billion. And that's why getting now to the COP, they have developed a very comprehensive investment case uh, because for every dollar you put in the CG, you're getting 
$10 in economic benefits. So we are looking forward to the presentation of that uh, investment case and to the leaders of the world, including African leaders, so that we can adequately fund the CG system because we know its track record for the past 60 years, working in 70 countries consistently, they've been coming up with the innovations which I've been talking about, the cassava, the sorghum, the millet, and then the chickens, and then the dairy cows, you know, the whole range of what is needed in the global south. Climate Plus is supported by the World Bank. Back in October, World Bank President Ajay Banga called for a new vision for ending poverty on a livable planet with a focus on climate action. We cannot endure another period of emission-heavy growth. We must find a way to finance a different world where our climate is protected, where pandemics are manageable, if not preventable, where food is abundant and fragility and poverty are defeated. We do not suffer from a shortage of solutions. We're just paralyzed by a persistent lack of courage to pursue them. The good news is that we have solutions like these within reach and resources at our disposal to scale them. To learn more about efforts to end poverty on a livable planet, search for the World Bank Group at COP28 or click the link in the show notes. I know that you all have have championed CGIR, and I believe that you've provided grant funding to them in the past. And also last year, the Gates Foundation announced, I believe it was 1.4 billion uh, commitment to climate ad- adaptation over four years. And and I imagine uh, a fair portion of that will go to CGI's uh, research and work as as well. But I'm curious because you talked about there's still this shortfall here, and and I mentioned you know overall I think for cl- climate adaptation there's a shortfall in funding. How do you you see you know how do you sort of encourage other funders, other donors to to really invest in this type of work? Um, and of course, I mentioned you know Bill Gates recently had a blog post, but um, it sounds like at COP uh, in Dubai this year that that that's going to be something that you're going to be talking about is how to increase investments. So that is going to be one of our core messages there. And again, to say this is not something we are looking into solving into the future, but we need to be showcasing what are those innovations which are in need of more capital in order to scale so that small the farmers uh, or across the global south can have access to it. And in fact, that this is not top of mind for you know, the countries or high income countries in the global north. Because if you just look at the number of people who are employed in primary agricultural production, in the U.S., it's less than 2%. In Europe, it's less than 1%. And then you look at the the contribution of agriculture to the economy, find that again in the U.S., agriculture contributes 5%. You know, some countries in Europe, less than 3%. So it is not top of mind that... We need to be funding those who are on the forefront of the actual food production. And in contrast, you go to Africa, it is more than, you know, 60% of your population is involved in primary production. So it is both 
where you get your food, but more importantly, it is about jobs. It is about livelihoods. This is where people get everything they need. They need school fees. You need the healthcare. Everything comes from what you produce, your crops and your livestock that you have on that one hectare. It is everything they have. And now it is under serious threat. You know, here's the platform that we know has been very effective in terms of reducing extreme poverty. It happened. We've had those waves, you know, 100 years here in the U.S., in about 90 years in Europe. Most recently, China lifted 800 million people out of extreme poverty using agriculture. And this is the very sector which is affected by climate change. And that's why ad adaptation is very important without neglecting, of course, mitigation to make sure that we can arrest, you know, future emissions. But more importantly, the core message, it is that today as we speak, we have temperatures rising fastest in Africa and South Asia. And then the damage is already due to climate change is almost twice in these uh, regions than there when you compare with the world average. You know that productivity from 1961 to 2015 would have been 20% higher at global level. You take that number, because again, this is global average, they mask a lot of the realities and context. You know, at global level, we have lost 20% of the productivity due to accumulated uh, impacts of climate change. In Africa, it is 34 to 40%, and it's double. So we are losing more. So for, for us, it is more about climate justice. If we are serious about meeting the SDGs, it won't happen until we begin to focus on this neglected sector, which is very, very sensitive uh, to, to climate. So that, I think, is going to be a, a, a key point. And then the question will be, what should we do? That is where we talk now about the CG system, this network, which is present everywhere and producing exactly those innovations that can benefit people today. So in my view, I think this is a unique moment. What now should we do? I think the leaders are becoming more serious. If you look at the Paris Agreement, $100 billion, it didn't materialize. And then in Glasgow in 2021, we say we're going to be doubling, you know, climate funding by 2025. We just got the numbers, you know, some of the numbers you were talking about from UNEP. It actually went down by 21%. We are now at $19.2 billion. And by 2025, it means it must be 35. So really very, very clear here that uh, it's about time the world leaders become serious. And we are not just here admiring the problem from different angles, but we are going there to be showing what works, what will be the return for every dollar that you begin to invest in these proven innovations. And, and do you anticipate that, you know, world leaders will be receptive to this message? And especially when you talk about climate justice, just because, you know, I cover philanthropy and I know that a lot of uh, the funding, global giving um, and, and finance still flows mostly to the global north, from the global north to the global north, often not to organizations in the global south and efforts that are you know, headquartered in the global south. 
So I, I wonder, you know, when you're talking about, you know, going to COP and, and having these conversations, how do you sort of highlight the need? And, and you know, for you, I imagine in, in many ways, this is also personal. You're from Zimbabwe. I'm sure you have family that's still there. How do you sort of talk about um, the needs there and the need to increase climate finance that directly, you know, improves lives in sub-Saharan Africa and South, South Asia? I mean, we all know that, you know, Climate has been attracting funding, just climate in general. I think it's north of $630 billion, you know, from about 2015 to 2021. But I think the key message here is that how much of that is flowing to those who need it the most. And we know the figures today. It is just 1.7% of that climate finance has, has been flowing to small scale producers. And even that, it was mainly on the mitigation. So we, the key message, adaptation has been neglected. You know, we are all very much upbeat about mitigation. I'm sure there are other reasons, you know, to that, you know, private sector can come in. You have a very clear metrics in, you know, on how to measure the 1.5 degrees, uh, you know, level is well known by everybody. But that is why we want to be clearer also on the adaptation, what is investable. So that is where we are getting in with the proven innovations and what it is done, you know, in certain places. Last year, when we announced the $1.4 billion over four years, we committed to be coming back every year and explain what is working so that again, we can bring others along in terms of understanding where do they get the best return. And this year we're coming very, very clearly in terms of the CG system. It's a proven, and I'm sure that investment case is going to be speaking for itself more clearly. Uh, but again, to your point, uh, um, you know, this year for the first time, the African leaders uh, converged in Nairobi in Kenya uh, for the first uh, Africa climate summit. Then understanding that Africa cannot have these negotiations as bits and pieces, fragmented voices all over the place. So really to amalgamate their position, you know, which they did, you know, I, I mean, I was there. There were more than 28,000 people, you know, a lot of people from the global north and they had very clearly, you know, what the African leaders are expecting. You know, this funding has to be accompanied by serious reforms, serious reforms in the multilateral organizations so that, you know, countries don't uh, get deeper into debt. Right now, there's a debt crisis. So if you have this climate funding for adaptation and it means more borrowing and getting deeper into debt, that's not what leaders are expecting. So, so again, that climate summit is helping Africa to articulate more clearly, you know, this is about negotiations. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that uh, on the on those who need, uh, you know, uh, this investment the most, they are ready and they've been preparing for many, many years, in particular this year. And the global, you know, leaders in the high income country, they've been promising and things haven't been fulfilled. I'm sure it takes you know some time for you to say, okay, <laughs> now maybe this is the right time for me to make good what I said in the past. So I'm hopeful that you know those two meet together and then come come up with a more concrete uh, 
uh, forward plans. And, and of course, at the end of the day, you want to look at uh, uh, those uh, plans at country level articulated well enough. And then with the African Adaptation Initiative, and they're doing exactly that, making sure that the country plans are sharper, they're very clear, the metrics are clear, so that when the funding start to flow in, they'll be able to account for every dollar uh, that will be made available. So it sounds like in some ways you're not only just talking about the lack of funding, but the need to have uh, maybe some policy changes that will make to ensure, I guess, that this this funding flows uh, efficiently to the people who need it most. Um, yeah, I wonder, you mentioned the, uh, the summit you went to in Africa. What were some reforms maybe that you heard there, reform proposals that you thought maybe were interesting and that might be helpful? We need serious reforms, even how to access, you know, this money. At times it's very, very, very difficult. We're talking about GCF as well. It is that, can you simplify the process so that those who need the most can apply and, and get what they need within the shortest possible time? The other was also really to be considering the debt situation of most of the countries. You, you can't be asking the countries to be borrowing. Uh, you know, there was a lot of conversation around the risks. And the reason why you end up with high interest rates is because certain uh, regions are considered risky. So it is now the profiling of that risk that has to be made good in terms of African leaders. They say, we want to come to the party. We are not just going to be here passive recipients. You know, we also have assets. We also have forests, which are carbon sinks. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of the source, the raw materials, that can be useful in the just transition, they sit right in Africa. So getting to the table with this is what we have, these are our needs, but you can't draw us into further debt. So I think that was really, really, uh, you know, emphasized. And I think it is a good point. Because again, I think one of the arguments is that, you know, Africa, when they borrow, it's about five to seven times more expensive. You know, for the same source of money. So really, I mean, those are, uh, you know, very much justified uh, issues to be put on the table. And I think this will continue even as the negotiations will be in the company. Are you looking for the inside story on what's happening at organisations like the World Bank, USAID or the Gates Foundation? Then you need to be reading DevX Pro. I'm Jessica Abrahams and I'm the editor of DevX Pro. Pro is DevX's premium news subscription, where our expert reporters and analysts take you beyond the headlines, deep into the trends and institutions shaping the $200 billion aid industry. As well as all our news, you'll get access to conversations with global development leaders, resources to help you grow in your career, and a subscriber-only newsletter full of insider news and tidbits. See for yourself by getting a free trial today at devx.com slash pro. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit and, and return back to some of the, the innovations uh, that, you know, Bill Gates had mentioned. And particularly, I was interested in AI and um 
and how, you know, AI is part of this adaptation strategy. I know that the Gates Foundation has been making uh, investments in the development of AI solutions um, in, in Africa. And, you know, of course, technology is another one of those areas where often the global South is kind of left behind or left out of the development. So can you sort of talk about the importance of developing AI solutions uh, that benefit the global South and how, you know, AI, you see AI being used for climate adaptation work? Uh, so, so, I mean, there, there are several applications for artificial intelligence. I think one, it is uh, in how you do the selection uh, of traits. Normally, I mean, there, there are things which you take very long if you are doing that, uh, counting things, you know, using uh, people, and then the machine will be able to really look into the various array of traits, you know, that we have, and then begin to match that with some of the needs of the consumers, of the producers, and of the processors. So the ability to match uh, what your crops can provide. And I can give you one example here of the beans. You know, there are several things you can look at within the bean uh, value chain. Uh, and at times it, it, it is very cumbersome. Yeah, doing that, you need to lots of uh, people either, uh, uh, and then people be actually doing the counting and then looking at each bean and then you look at the characteristics you select and then go to the next cycle. So all that work can be made simpler, you know, via artificial intelligence. So, so I'll say that is part of, you know, as you develop new innovations, you can be more precise, you can increase the accuracy and you can begin to match the needs of the consumers, particularly women here. You look at some of the uh, cooking properties, the time it takes to be preparing, uh, all those you need some help. And then I think AI will do, you know, a lot of work. So we are we have some work there, uh, uh, you know, which we are doing with the Google and the Alphabet, and then working together with the SEAT Biodiversity, which is a part of the CG system. And we've got some work in Tanzania and in Kenya and they are working on more than uh, five crops, uh, which include uh, millet, PGNP, uh, some of the sweet potato, uh, and then sorghum. So really those local crops, understanding them better, characterizing them, identifying uh, what are the core traits, and then matching them with the needs of the consumers and processors as well as producers. And then also on the front end, you can also come up with uh, some of the voice technologies. I mean, since I came here from Africa to the US, I can use Alexa, you know, I lose, but at times my accent, it might not be compatible with Alexa. I have to change my, I have to, <laughs> I have to change my accent in order for Alexa to understand me. So we are also doing a lot of uh, voice and language harvesting to make sure that people can speak in their own local languages using their own local accents, and then they can be getting the help they need in real time. So, so there's several applications, front end, back end, uh, to make your uh, innovation development uh, more precise, faster, accurate, but also to be uh, using that as a channel of relaying new information uh, to, the, to the customers, particularly the uh, smallholder farmers where your 
literacy levels is very, very low. Uh, so we need to be able to capture what uh, their exact needs. So again, I, I, I can be applied in those areas. I, I can only imagine how you're changing your accent. I don't I don't think I've ever <laughs> I mean, I don't know what voice you're using, but I mean, I think that's a, a really good point. It, you know, a lot of uh, technology because it is developed in uh, in, you know, northern countries are particular to those those environments and not always inclusive. Um, and sort of along those lines, I know that, you know, a big focus for the Gates Foundation is, um, you know, pushing forward women, women's economic empowerment and, and gender uh, parity. And you mentioned that, you know, a lot of smallholder farmers are women. So in many ways, you know, by working to help them adapt to, to climate change and giving them access to tools and technology like AI, um, it, it seems like a, a big part of the work you're doing is helping to lift out, lift not only families, but women in particular out of poverty in some of the places you're working. I wonder if you can kind of talk about that experience? Uh, yes, women, uh, they consider about 60% of the people who work on the farm. Uh, so if you are a company that distributes seeds like the what I did, you know, for more than 25 years, you do your field day and you find that 90% of the people who attend the field day are women. When it comes to the purchase time in terms of what inputs do you buy on the farm you find that often maybe it is the uh, husband that works somewhere and then they say okay it's now time for me to buy the inputs for you and then they just buy the inputs without even consulting the women so 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 they, they, they we need to be intentional uh, about making sure that our distribution system is uh, sensitive or uh, in service of women uh, we also looked at that time, looking at the pack sizes, you know, smallholder farmers, in particular women, they don't get all their money in one day when they're preparing for the season. We've realized that, uh, you know, if you are selling, uh, say, Macy, you can't be expecting all your customers to be buying a 10 kg, although you need a 10 kg to do one acre, but particularly women, they will buy 2 kg at a time as and when they get that $1 or 50 cents. So they will have several 2 kgs to add up to the uh, 10 kg, which they need, you know, per, per hectare or per acre. So all those are being very intentional about the needs of the women. We know today that the productivity gap in Ethiopia, in Nigeria, and Kenya, between um, female-headed households or farms and male-headed is about 25 to 30%, because women have other unique needs and they won't be able to access you know, credit at the same levels. They don't have collateral like men do. So it is now uh, part of our work we are now calling it more women power. You know, you can't just talk about empowerment without the active involvement of those women. They should be involved in the decision making. They should be involved in the policy formulation. Uh, so their presence and then making sure, you know, as you focus on the uh, partners, do you have partners which are 
have uh, uh, women as leaders because that matters. The way they will run the organization, like the, SME, the SMEs, small and medium enterprises, we have some work with the Agra and they have a platform they call Value for Hair. And then they are reaching out to all the SMEs which are led by women and making sure that they lend money to them because they've got unique needs. So we do a lot of uh, those from a policy perspective, but also going very deep into demonstrating uh, also uh, what would be unique. We've realized that for climate adaptation and resilience building, the more uh, um, female uh, farmers or women farmers can diversify, you know, the more enterprise they have on that farm, you know, the more they're able to be building resilient. They need to be doing crops. They need to be doing livestock at the same time. They need to be doing trees and they need to be doing uh, many other things, not just, uh, you know, specializing in one particular value chain, but there's a high risk. If the price collapse of one particular, then it means they are right on the edge. So we have several things that we work on demonstrating what uh, gender transformative uh, interventions look like. You can be gender intentional, like when you do all your research and development, you can be choosing uh, certain crops, which women are already leading, uh, like cassava, like your legumes, and then maybe they're lagging behind in terms of the research and development. That's also part of the CG, you know, we focus on that. But also when it comes to the actual market access, are there some unique um, requirements for women? And we have a team here that does that every day. Uh, one, focusing into the integration. All our work, all the innovations, we must have women voices in shaping those innovations. But also on the delivery part, there will be certain channels which will be more effective in reaching women. So we have quite a huge program uh, here. And um, women's empowerment is one of the four strategic goals that we have within the agricultural development program. We have productivity of land and labor, which applies to men and women. We talk about the income at household level for both men and women. Then we've got the nutrition all year round for both men and women. But the fourth one is about women's empowerment. And then we have some metrics around that. It is what we call the WEAR index just to make sure that the women have agency, they have control, they have a voice in how they use the resources and the proceeds, you know, coming out of farming. What, what's next, do you think, for, for the foundation in terms of its climate adaptation work? And, and how do you think, you know, this year's COP might help set the, the agenda for the foundation going forward into 2024? What, what kind of outcomes, I guess, are you sort of hoping to see? And, and how do you think that might be incorporated into the work you're doing? Uh, so I would say uh, 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 two big things. One, I think the world has to realize and understand that there is a climate injustice, particularly for those who have contributed the least. They are suffering first and they're suffering most. I think this is a very, very important point for the world to know that we won't be able to meet our SDG goals on poverty, hunger, malnutrition, gender equality, until we 
will focus intently on smallholder farmers. That I think is a very core message and I would continue to do that. The second, it is about how do we do that? Uh, for us, it is going to be how we adequately fund the CG system for the reasons that I have uh, talked about and for the reasons the investment case will articulate even more accurately, even as we get to COP. I think there's going to be a session when the world leaders and then the CG system uh, officially launching the investment case. Very, very important, not just for the global north and high income countries, but also even for the African leaders. Because the CG system produces public global goods accessible to anyone. But how those public global goods become national goods depends on the investment at country level. What is that capacity that you need, uh, you know, for the African leaders to build within their own country so that they can now begin to access? You need to be testing those in your own country. You need to make sure that you develop uh, functional uh, delivery systems. You know, you need the enabling policies for private sector to come in and be part of the, that, that distribution network. So there is that uh, leadership role by those who need the investments, their minimum investment, they need to prioritize what are those value chains that will give them the best return uh, within the country. Um, and, and then uh, maybe the, uh, the last thing, it is for us to focus on what already works today. There's that list of many, many innovations that we have. And then we need capital to be flowing uh, towards those. And maybe as we started last year at COP27, can we for the next COP just come back and be reporting on what's working, what's not working, and then fine tune as we go. Otherwise, you know, these forums will become negotiations and announcements, and we don't get to know, you know, what those pledges have amounted to. Well, Enoch Chikava, thanks so much for being here. It's been a real pleasure talking to you about this, and I hope you have an excellent COP experience this year. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, you doing this. Thanks for listening to Climate Plus. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it. And you can also leave us a rating or a review. We'll be publishing episodes twice a week in the lead up to, during, and after COP28. So make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform. If you want to share some feedback on this episode or have questions you'd like answered, we'd love to hear from you. Drop me a message on X, formerly Twitter, at alterigo, or send an email to podcast at devx.com. Climate Plus is a podcast from DevX. Today's episode was produced by Lauren Evans and edited by Thomas Cherep. The series editor is Catherine Cheney. It's hosted by me, Michael Igoe.